this will be the last time that we're going to be reading from this book for the last uh, year and a half or so. And uh, this is now the final sermon. First Thessalonians chapter 5, reading verses uh, 25 through 28. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And today, my friends, we look at the final verse. Verse 28 of this uh, Pauline epistle written by the Apostle Paul and also by Timothy and Silas, as we've noted. You know, Paul wrote at least 13 letters in the New Test that are in the New Testament, at least 13. There's a question as to whether he wrote the book of Hebrews as well, but we certainly know that he wrote from Romans uh, all the way through to the little book of Philemon. Most of those were written to churches such as this one. There were a few that were to, to individuals such as Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Uh, but most of these were written to churches and that's where, these, that's where these letters get their names from. Romans to those who were in Rome. Corinthians those who were in Corinth. And of course, here, Thessalonians, to those who were in Thessalonica. Uh, Paul had helped to found the church here in Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. This was written about A.D. 51 to 53, and probably from Athens, which as we know is today the capital of Greece. As we have already pointed out, this book is noteworthy for its emphasis on the second coming of Christ. Because, my friends, he is coming, and it will be a day of glory and a day of judgment. The Thessalonica was about 90 miles west of Philippi, where Paul had gone after the Macedonian call of Acts 16. It's located in the region of Macedonia, which is a mountainous area, so think, think mountains. With broad, with also with broad, fertile valleys, as we have already, over the course of this series, it was a cosmopolitan city of 200,000, so about half the size of Atlanta proper. Along the Ignatian Way it was the superhighway of the day, a paved road, uh, 15 feet wide, great military highway, which stretched 500 miles. Uh, so on such a road. One would probably travel about 17 miles per day on foot. <laughs> Not 17 miles per hour, 17 miles per day on foot, or about four miles per hour in a vehicle like a chariot. Now, the city was uh, at the end of a bay, and it rose up from that bay in, like an amphitheater on the slopes of the foothills. It was a port city. And uh, today it is called Saloniki and is Greece's second largest city. So again, just to bring those things to your remembrance as we come to a conclusion of this series. So as we look now at verse 28, the very last verse of this epistle, 
we see that Paul and his companions pronounce a blessing upon the Thessalonians. Paul and his companions pronounce a blessing upon the Thessalonians. So let's look first of all then at the blessing itself. How does this little verse begin? It talks about grace. The grace. And my friends, we, you and I, are in need of grace. This is God's unmerited favor. His undeserved love. We don't deserve His love. We don't deserve His mercy. But in compassion and love and mercy, He has poured out upon us His grace. This is what all of us desperately need. And this is what we see displayed throughout this book. Remember when we looked at chapter 1, that Paul affirmed the Thessalonians. He affirmed them, including with regard to the sovereignty of God and God's sovereign election, his predestinating of people unto salvation. He said, you have been chosen. This is all part of God's choice. It's all part of God's grace, you see. And Paul affirmed the Thessalonians that that's who they were. God provided support for them in the face of persecution. And they were, furthermore, and that was also his grace, and furthermore, they were given the grace to be widely known for their Christian testimony. As it says here in, in uh, chapter 1, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, that'd be down towards like Athens, but also in every place. In other words, for hundreds of miles, this new and little church in Thessalonica was known. Isn't that amazing? It's a fairly small church probably. Certainly a new church. And yet their faith was known all throughout these two entire regions. That was also part of God's grace. In chapter 2, we see that God provided such tender, gentle people for these believers. As, as Paul and, and his uh, companions uh, say, that we remember, you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God, your witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted, sometimes they had to be called to account, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. We were like, we, we, we were almost like nursing, that's what he says back in verse 7. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. That's how the, the great Apostle Paul was. And why was he that way? Because of God's grace. Furthermore, God gave them the grace to accept what Paul and these others were saying as being what it is, the very word of God. Why do we accept, why is it, why is it that the world with some very intelligent people, very smart people, in academia, in government, whatever, why is it that the world by and large does not accept 
the Bible is the word of God. Because God has not opened their eyes And if God has opened your eyes to embrace the word of God, it is all because of his grace. Chapter 3, we see that Timothy was able to confirm their faith and love, that they were doing what was right, that they were walking the way they should be walking. Again, a sign of God's grace in the midst of the church in Thessalonica, along with the prayer that they would increase and abound in love, being established in holiness. This is all part of the grace of God. And so the beginning of this verse says, the grace, and then notice towards the end, be with you. The grace, be with you. You see, what we have here in terms of this blessing is what we call a benediction or a pronouncement of blessing. We've already had one back in verses 23 and 24, where they write, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. So we've already had one benediction, and now at the very end, we have this final benediction. Now there are other more common benedictions. You may be familiar from the Old Testament, from the book of Numbers, chapter 6, dealing with Aaron and his sons, the Aaronic, the priestly benediction. Numbers chapter 6, 24 through 26, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. But then there are numerous benedictions that Paul has written in virtually all of the letters. Book of Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 2 Thessalonians, 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. And furthermore, we see in other letters as well, such as the book of Hebrews. You remember last week, I pronounced the benediction from Hebrews 13, which is usually what we do with regard to communion. And speaking of the, the um, in terms of the, uh, the grace of God, um, and um, uh, Hebrews uh, 13 and verse 20, now may the God of peace who brought again our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, as you look at a benediction then, we know that this is to be done by a minister of the gospel. So it's not done by just anybody. Same way with, with the uh, administration of the sacraments. It is done by a minister of the gospel. And often, people will look at him as he pronounces this blessing. And often, people will hold up their cupped hands as if to receive it. The minister, of course, holds up both his hands as if to say, may God's 
grace, may God's blessing fall upon you. Now this benediction is not a prayer as such, though it's similar to it. It is not a doxology or praise. And let me also be very clear, it is not magic, as if there is power in the minister. That would be the Roman Catholic position. But it is, nevertheless, a pronouncement of blessing. A pronouncement of blessing. It is a declaration of the special covenant relationship of God and his people. The declaration of the special covenant relationship between God and his people. That he will be our God and we will be his people. And God has said that that's the way it's going to be because of his grace. It's a declaration of that. This blessing, of course, is accomplished by Christ. We'll look at that more in just a moment. But it's accomplished by Christ, but then it is applied by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, it is Trinitarian. It is, it is a blessing from the Trinity, from the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it is centered on Christ because of what he did, because of the fact that he took on human flesh, and because of the fact he died for our sins. So it is Trinitarian, but it is Christocentric. So the first thing we see today is the blessing which is grace, the grace be with you. But secondly, we notice the bestower, not just the blessing, but the one who bestows it, who gives it. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting, is it not, that here we find the three, three names, three names to refer to, to Jesus. First of all, we see the name Lord. Lord. And this is actually a translation of what we find in the Old Testament in terms of Yahweh or Jehovah. In other words, by, by calling Jesus Lord, we are affirming that he is truly God. Everything you can say about God, you can say about Jesus. He is truly God. He is the one indeed who is the creator. My friends, even on that basis, even on that basis, we owe him our allegiance and our loving obedience. We owe Jesus our allegiance and our loving obedience. And so he is the Lord. But he is also Jesus. And this word comes from the Greek, from the Hebrew in the Old Testament, Yeshua, or it could even sometimes it's translated Joshua, interestingly. So the name Joshua is related to it. But it is Yeshua. It is, it is the personal name of our Savior, which means salvation. Is that not what uh, we read about in terms of the birth of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. Excuse me, verse 21. And she shall bring forth a son, 
and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So my friends, he is the one whose very name means salvation. In Acts 4, verse 12, we read, For neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. It's at the name of Jesus that every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that he is God to the glory of the Father. And so we see then it is the Lord Jesus, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is another word for Messiah, Mishiach in the Hebrew, Messiah, or the Anointed One. He is the one, you see, who is the one that has been appointed by God. He's the one that's been anointed by God. He's the one who was appointed by God to carry out our salvation. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Before, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. In Isaiah 53, the wonderful passage with regard to the salvation that we have. Isaiah 53 and verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So being the Christ means that he was the one who was not only anointed by God for service, but the one who was appointed by God unto death to die for you and for me. And so having considered the name, the Lord Jesus Christ, we now look just for a moment at his work. What, when you think of Jesus, what do you think of in terms of his work? Well, first of all, we consider the fact of his sinless life. The fact that there is not one thing that he did was wrong. He confronted people sometimes, sometimes very harshly even, Sometimes he really was righteously indignant. But there was not one thing that he did that was wrong. Even his enemies had to admit it. But my friends, his sinless life, you see, was not simply for our example, although it is that. But it was for our salvation because he kept the law we could not keep. We think of his substitutionary death, his atonement at the cross. The fact that he cried out from the cross, my God. My God, why hast thou forsaken me? In other words, he needed to die a death that we dare not die, to take hell upon himself at the cross so that you and I can have salvation. His life, his death, his resurrection from the grave, his, coming, his being raised from the dead for our salvation. His ascension is going into glory where he is right now. His sending of the Holy Spirit so that we can be sanctified, the very thing that was talked about in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, in terms of abstaining from sexual immorality, 
and so forth. Not and no one take advantage of him to fraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. My friends, that sanctification, that being set apart for God's service, that holiness to which we are called, that rejection of sin to which we are called, that rejection of selfishness and self-centeredness to which we have been called, is because of the grace of Christ in sending his Holy Spirit. And finally, his coming again, as we read in chapters 4 and 5. Indeed, my friends, he is coming. He is coming when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. As labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. He is coming again. So, when we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, we see not only his name, but we also see his word. And finally then, we have the final word, which is amen. Amen. It's a finale. It is the end. Amen. It means, so let it be. Amen. And yet, and yet, there is an ongoing nature of the blessing. It's kind of like a commencement. You know what a commencement ceremony is, children? Some of you may be graduating from high school at a commencement. Commencement means a beginning. So you have the graduation, but it's a commencement because it means that you are now starting on the next stage of your life. And so it's an ending, in a sense, but it's also a, there's also a commencement. There is an anticipation, you see, of the future. So I have two points of application today, and the first is this. Understand and appreciate the specialness of the benediction. Understand and appreciate the specialness of the benediction. As our church's directory of public worship says, quote, the benediction is a pronouncement, declaration, not a prayer of adjournment and should never become a mere formality for dismissing the congregation. It's not Roger Wilco over and out. He goes on to say, the bestowing of a blessing of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a high and holy privilege. The congregation should wait quietly and reverently to receive the benediction. We might say it this way. A benediction is like a goodnight kiss at the end of a date. It's sort of bittersweet. The date is coming to an end. Yet, there's the anticipation of something more during courtship. And as you approach the wedding day, it's a goodnight kiss the end of the date. And so understand and appreciate the specialness of benediction. And then secondly, does this benediction apply to you? Does it apply to you? Really? Really? Does it really apply to you? 
Genesis 17, we read that our God will be our God and we will be his people. And yet that's true for those whom he regenerates. And only those. Only those in whom the work of grace has actually taken heart, has actually taken root. In Hosea chapter 2, we read about an unfaithful woman by the name of Gomer, whom Hosea the prophet was to marry. And there's judgment. God pronounces judgment. But also there was the realization by that woman as she was, as she was stripped of all that she had. There came about a realization of who her true husband was. And the Lord then would come, will come after his elect. He will come after us. And just like we see in Hosea 2, he will woo us back to himself. He will win us back to himself so that no longer will they wander. And so I ask you, my friends, when I pronounce the benediction in just a few moments, does this benediction apply to you? Or are you just faking it? Amen. Please stand for prayer. Now, our Father, we pray that thy Holy Spirit would do his gracious work in the hearts of everyone here, convicting, converting, wooing us back to thee. May we indeed experience thy blessing. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.